We do not grow old with age. We age because we are not growing. I want to know where they are at that moment. I want to know if they want comfort, encouragement, hope. Those are the things that are most important. He said, don't make a junkyard of your old age. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm Hannah Seymour, your co-host. Michael Easley is sitting across laughing at me right now. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I just love that inflection. I just... It's, it's my professional radio is that voice. Your, oh, okay. Yes, okay. people well, tell me it sounds lovely and is soothing. That's You're true. You're welcome. People do often say, it's so good to have your daughter's yeah. voice on there, a.k.a. In other words, You're it sounds better than you. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. You're welcome. You are. Okay, so Prof is going to talk about this. Psychologists suggest if social integration hasn't taken place by the ages of 30 to 40, it becomes almost impossible between 50 to 60 years old. I spend, well, I've spent the last 12 years trying to convince college students that the way they pursue people and build relationships matters and that it creates habits and patterns that will truly span the rest of their lifetime. But if they can learn how to pursue people and make great friends while 18, 19, 20, 25, they will have... I mean, I'm assuming I'm not there yet, but rich, lasting friendships in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And the reason I know that is because I've watched you and mom do it. Y'all have ch- – I've watched you chase friends over the years. You have friendships that have spanned decades, several moves from Texas, Virginia, Chicago to now Nashville. Um, you've had to work really hard to maintain those relationships. How normal do you think that is for most people your age? Very abnormal. Yeah. Very abnormal. Um, Early on, uh, your mom and I, and not to be critical of your mom's perspective on this, but I had to kind of pull her along. Mm -hmm. She was not as excited about this as I was. Um, I remember, uh, fast forward a bit, our 10th year of marriage, I drug her to counseling. Yeah. And she didn't want to do that either. Yeah. And now she blames all her orneriness on me taking her to counseling. Sure. (laughs) Because I wasn't like that before counseling. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that I was determined, I I looked around the couples uh, that we knew that were a decade older than us, Hannah, and I couldn't see many married couples that I wanted to be like. Mm. I couldn't see many people I wanted to be like. Now, I'm not saying I'm some super great, superhuman guy. It was more I looked at their life and thought, I don't really like this situation. Yeah. So what I decided to do was pursue people that were smarter than me, Mm -hmm. older than me, uh, down the road further than me, more successful in areas that I had any knowledge base of. And I won't say it was easy for me, but perhaps my personality was easier than for some people. Mm -hmm. But I figured, look, if I want friends, I'm going to have to pursue them. And here's here's the key. There's no tit for tat. 
Yeah. I'm not going to wait for them to call me up. Yeah. I'm going to pursue them. If, if I want to value a relationship, uh, a friend is going to pursue you no matter what your response is. Now, that doesn't mean all these friendships work out. Right. There's lots of friendships that were transitional, that were temporary, Certainly. that maybe, especially in a married couple, you and Tyler know this, it's hard to find a couple where all four get along. Yep. That's a real gift when you find that. But you also have to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. It rarely happens the first eight, ten times you're hanging out with somebody. Mm-hmm. It takes it takes time to find out what common interests you have. Uh, are you compatible? Do you have the same kind of humor, et cetera, et cetera? And you're not looking for a clone, but you're looking for somebody that uh, sharpens you, that challenges you, that's better than you are in certain ways. So anyway, for your mom and me, it's become a a pattern of our uh, 37 years of marriage and counting. And to me, it's the greatest treasure of all. It's worth more than uh, any attention that you might get for for success, uh, any accolades, any awards. I'd rather have my friends around uh, than anything else. And I bring that up because I think as y'all are entering your 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think you're going to have rich friendships. And yes, you have mentors that are going to be with the Lord now. Um, Certainly, you're going to bury some of your friends that are your age, the older you get. But you also cultivate relationships with folks that are younger than you. And I think for me, it's just the reminder of when I envision this What Now series, it's easy to go, gosh, I've got... 30 years before I'm going to be in my 60s. This doesn't matter. But how I live today, the relationships that I'm plugging into, all of that matters and is going to either propel me into my 60s or I'm going to be trying to recover from it um, for the latter decades of my life. I'm driving this morning to the studio and I have a little bit of drive and I called George Bocorny. I've known George since third grade. (laughs) It's amazing. Third grade. Uh, he's two years older. He's in fifth grade. I'm in third grade, and I meet George Bocorny in Houston, Texas. We're still friends to this day. It's incredible. We pick up right where we left off. He asks about – he doesn't call her my mom. He calls her grandmare because that's what everybody calls her. Mm-hmm. I ask about his mom because she's been in the hospital, and she's she's really struggling right now. And it, we picked up, and I go, who has a friend like this? Yeah. Who has a friendship that – you know, I have to do the math real quick. I'm 61. How old are you in third grade? Uh, like eight. Eight or nine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do the math. We, we've we been friends that long, fifty plus, almost 50 plus years. So that's just a remarkable treasure. Yeah. And there's no expectation. There's no, you didn't call me. I didn't call you. Did you miss my birthday? I mean, none whatsoever. Sure. So no matter if you're 20 or 60, cultivating those relationships is a huge part of the Christian dynamic. People to encourage you, to walk with you, uh, who've been ahead of you, who are behind you. Uh, To me, this is the goal of life that so many people are missing. Hmm. You've watched several of your friends and mentors live out their final years of life on this earth. Who is someone that lived really well until the end? Or maybe it's not just one person, but but a culmination of things you've seen, characteristics, habits you've watched. What does that look like to do that well? That's a great question. I don't know if I can do it justice. I, I would say um, they they loved Christ. It was obvious they were focused on the Lord. Uh, I can still remember Floyd Sharp memorizing Scripture uh, as he walked around the mall at Irving, Texas. Amazing. Still gets you choked up, doesn't it? You can't cry because I'll cry. Now I always cry. <laughs> uh, you know, Prof. Hendricks, I mean, he was passionate about the word. He was passionate about communicating. He was passionate about his wife. He always talked about his beautiful wife, his incredible wife. 
Um, I would say simply they were men who loved God and men who loved their family and men who loved others. Hmm. And uh, and they stayed the course. They stayed growing. They didn't stop. They didn't become bitter because I was I was feared. You visit, we'll talk about this in the broadcast, you visit a nursing home and assisted living, skilled care, they're bitter or sweet, no in between. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that smart to think I'm sure I'm going to be sweet. I'll probably be bitter if I'm not <laughs> intentionally working on trying to be a nice person. So entropy is tough to beat. And my whole theory with this relational piece and mentors, it, I want I want to look at somebody. I'm not trying to be them. Mm-hmm. I want to be like them and learn what they've learned, if possible. So to me, it was a pretty selfish motivation to pursue these mentors. But at the same time, you know, they'll talk about having a Paul, a Tim- a Timothy, and a Barnabas. That there's that relational network that someone older than you, your peer, and someone younger than you that you're mentoring and shaping and encouraging in their spiritual life. And there's no expert. I mean, yeah. we're all learning. Yeah. But boy, when Floyd says, you know, when I was your age, it was different. But let me tell you a story. I'm all ears mm-hmm. because they've lived it and and processed through it as opposed to I think I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That's hubris. Yeah. Well, speaking of those mentors, let's join Prof in the third lecture from the W.H. Griffith Thomas Lecture Series. The terrible threat against life is not death nor pain, nor any variation of the disasters that we so obsessively try to protect ourselves against with social systems and personal stratagems. The terrible threat is that we might die earlier than we really do die, before death has become a natural necessity. The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. The words of Vitislav Gardovsky, Czech philosopher and martyr. Somewhere between 40 and 55, We human beings start to realize that the years we have already lived are probably more than the years that lie ahead. We tend to mull over what life has been all about, to take an inventory on what has been positive or negative effect on our beings, and to decide sometimes quite subconsciously what to change. Fred Smith quipped, in the middle life, you don't want to make a junkyard out of your old age. But we Christians need a bit of biblical tutoring. Solomon's ancient warning echoes menacingly. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Focusing on our Creator adds a new dimension to life. We do not grow old with age. We age because we are not growing. To begin this lecture, we must blast 
before we build. Erase before we establish the essentials of personal latter life management. There is a fistful of myths about old age which need to be stifled. I define a myth as an oft-repeated belief that has no factual basis, but is generally accepted as true, whether or not it can be substantiated. Here are five. One, that the closing years of life will inevitably be less enjoyable and stimulating than earlier years. Two, that old age is a disease synonymous with disability and ill health. Three, that the ability to change or to absorb new ideas or learn new skills necessarily diminishes with age. Four, that new relationships are difficult or even impossible to form and maintain in old age. And five, that if you lo live long enough, you will be sent on. Wrong five times over. It is possible to grow older and never grow old. Contrary to accepted folklore, God does reserve the best for the last, but an enjoyable and fruitful old age is not automatic. Each phase of life prepares for the next as we intentionally leave the past behind and step courageously ahead. We are always fueling tomorrow. Today gains glory only as it was seeded yesterday. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. John 12, 24, new life comes forth. We have to get ready to get old. How we think, what we are, and what we do now will inform tomorrow. What you will be, you are now becoming. Rule Howe reminds us our insurance against tomorrow is what we do today. The tenses of life, past, present, and future are inseparable. We cannot live entirely in the present without destroying the future, nor entirely in the future without destroying the present. It is only to the degree that you are able to enjoy the present moment of life that you will be able to enjoy the future. Science has increased the quantity of life, but with no guarantee of better quality. Well-extended years, men and women are free. But for what? Boredom? To kill time is to injure eternity. So how do we avoid this quicksand? I've divided this lecture into two closely related components. First, holistic health, and secondly, 
distinctive death. An insidious slowdown starts long before old age. Our bodies have to work harder to do the same things. Our minds seem to resist disciplines that we once welcomed. Our judgment changes. Silly youthful fun loses its fizz and friendships become somehow much more valuable. We subtly metamorphose into a senior. Along with gray hair and stiff joints, we begin to suspect that they are lining up for our job, our library, even our inheritance. Inexorably, we feel marginalized, old. Is it wrong? Is it a sin? Is it a delusion? Is there a break system or a place to make a U-turn? There are four interlocking measurements in holistic health, physical, intellectual, social, and spiritual. Each one is interdependent on each of the other constituents. Barring sudden illness, any abrupt transitions from full-time industry to a state of total inactivity is completely contrary to the laws of human nature. If our years are designed to flow seamlessly from one phase to the next, how do we prepare? I'd like to propose four means. First of all, physical endurance. The Bible declares that there is as much hope for your body as for your soul. We are stewards of only one body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You're not your own, but bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It is incumbent upon each of us to monitor the progress of the only instrument God has given us and the one which will someday be glorified. We will be living in our glorified bodies forever. Job said, 19 and verse 26, And after my skin has been destroyed, Yet in my flesh I will see God. Our physical health can be prolonged, but only as we practice moderation. To eat properly, to exercise sensibly, and to rest appropriately. Each life looks different, but elementary principles of good health always dictate a balanced lifestyle. Scientific research is now proving that the older one gets, the longer one is likely to go on living. But what of unhealth, illness so often experienced in older years? Health is more than the absence of sickness. Arthur Kessler once wrote, only now in old age, afflicted by several chronic diseases, do I realize what it means to move constantly along the verge of exhaustion, to feel irritable because of sheer physical 
fatigue. My mother once said in her frustration, why didn't somebody tell me that getting old was going to be like this? Probably they did, but youth tends to have selective hearing. When one is felled by disease and the distresses of physical disability, it's very difficult to see the goodness of God, to understand that he is a God of mercy and grace. Nevertheless, many sick saints I have visited taught me that a frail body cannot imprison a courageous spirit. I used to visit a woman, Mrs. Kendall by name. I visited her much more frequently than anyone in the congregation. She thought in order to minister to her. The truth of the matter is she so deeply ministered to me. She asked me one day, Pastor, what can I do to help you? I said, well, Mrs. Kendall, you know, I send out letters every week to the people who visit the church. Would you like to fold these letters and put them in the envelope? She said, I'd love to. But you need to know it will take me a long time. It took her 15 minutes to fold one letter and stuff one envelope. The reason being extreme arthritis. The only way she could fold the letter was by putting her whole body on it, increasing it. And she said to me one day, Pastor, it takes me a long time, but that gives me more opportunity to pray for the people to whom these letters go. Oh, the pastoral staff, the elders thought we were the ones who were the reason why people were coming to Christ like it was going out of style. The truth of the matter it was, dear Mrs. Kendall, she awakened one night cold. She went over to turn on a space heater, got too close, and her chenille robe caught on fire. And she was burned to over 80 to 85 percent of her body. On the way to the hospital in the ambulance, she said to the paramedic, would you do me a favor? He said, certainly. She said, would you call my pastor and tell him where I am? I know he wants to know. And here's the number. And then she led him to Christ as his savior en route to her death. Dr. Paul Tournier makes the point. You can still live intensely. If there's a minus, there's also a plus. One loses something only to acquire something else, an aspect of life that cannot be known before. He goes on to say, the way in which people bear their ills depends much more on their state of mind than the gravity of their ills. Brain researchers tell us that the body is naturally producing painkillers called endorphins. These morphine-like substances have their own receptors in the brain. In times of extreme physical and mental stress, these natural opiates are released 
we call it shock. That may explain why many heroic feats and mysterious healings occur. But endorphins may also be summoned at will to supersede physical limitations. Norman Cousins, former faculty member of UCLA's medical school, writes in his book, The Healing Heart, at a certain stage of intensity of effort, endorphins are released by the brain into the bloodstream. Their effect is similar to the one produced by opiates. Mark the difference. It is not a denial of aging, but a positive confidence and hope that are as effective as any prescription a pharmacy can fill. Panic, fear, frustration, rage, depression, despair, says Cousins, wreak havoc in the body's endocrine system and destabilize the individual. Positive emotions play a powerful role in the restoration and maintenance of good health and human functioning. Having said this, let us not forget that helping others to bear their infirmities contributes as much to our enrichment as their encouragement. The tender care of a loving helper when one is in pain is beyond description. The bedside or wheelchair vigil pays rich dividends to a thoughtful caregiver. After 14 years as a hospice nurse, a woman said to my wife recently, I've gained so much from tending these dying people that I feel I have been highly privileged to be a part of their most difficult days. I want to keep on doing it. Physical activity is important in advancing years, but never forget, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8, physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Holistic health is the product of second intellectual growth. As birthdays multiply, mental growth often tends to shrivel without careful cultivation. It's a curious fact that as people have invented machines to save time, the automobile, the airplane, the typewriter, the calculator, the photocopier, the cell phone, and even the computer. They hurry more and think less. Added life demands that older retired people re-educate themselves. The more expertise people have, the better their chance to enjoy lifelong learning. At any age, we as believers must not close the shutters on our minds. Peter's advice, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, 2 Peter 1.5. An active brain is as important as a functioning body in combating premature aging. It has been estimated that most of us use only 5 to 10% of our potential brain power. Study can be carried on at one's personal pace. 
Everyone needs a personal stretching plan. It is said that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that's true if you're teaching dogs and if you're teaching tricks. But God has called me to do neither. <laughs> Mood makes a major difference in mental health. And this connects with the physical. Prolonged stress and despair soon show up in diseases. In a life devoid of stimulating interests, weeds appear on fallow mental ground. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 14 and verse 20, in his first letter, to stop thinking like children, that is, aimless, fanciful, immature, rather think as adults, that is, with life in Christ, which is high-voltage sanity, bright, warm, and energy-giving. Above all, the aging brain needs to think ahead. The realism of today need not cloud the living of tomorrow. Each new day, Jeremiah reminds us, is a new beginning with our God, a beginning of faithfulness, because his mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3.23. T.S. Eliot worded it this way, old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity. The third ingredient of holistic health is social development. Man, a social being, needs contact and affirmation, linkage with a living community. Isolation results in immobility. Involvement leads to health. Dr. Jay Kessler, president of Taylor University, told me some time ago, Howie, I can't seem to find enough older men and women to whom I can expose our students. The kids love them and constantly ask, when you're going to have more seasoned saints speak in chapel? Whoever said the young disdain the old did not have a realistic appreciation for today's generation. It is just the opposite. More and more are wanting to establish contact with older people, to listen to them, to understand them, to assist them in helpful ways, and be mentored by them. Is there a formula for cracking the code of social involvement? Many older folks long to be a part of the scene and do not know how. They feel pent up and want to open a door. No matter what age, connecting with other people means taking ourselves by the scruff of the neck and building a bridge. As we go, it is by faith that God will somehow use us in the life of other people. Christianity is very personal, but it is never meant to be private. Never a secret formula to be hoarded in self-absorbed lives. As long as we think only of filling a void in ourselves, social interaction will be counterproductive. When we concentrate on what we have to give by God's grace, other people become a must. 
A pertinent question to ask ourselves is, how much am I doing to prompt that other person to lift the latch, to open up? Letters of Paul indicate how much he was involved in animating the bleak lives of many persecuted believers in his culture. It is possible to be very much alone in a crowded nursing home, a church, or a seminary. The most common tragedy in old age is social withdrawal. One half of the people in nursing homes, it's estimated, are never visited by anyone. Psychologists suggest if social integration has not taken place by the age, ages of 30 to 40, it becomes almost impossible between 50 and 60. As people grow older, they either become better or more bitter, sweeter or more sour. They talk more, but enjoy it less, because they've never learned to listen. If people talk only about their problems and concerns, the possibility of lasting friendships is nil. People connections are vital for aging individuals. For believers, the latter years can be the richest of, in all of life if they become a part of other lives. The gentle touch of a seasoned life energized by Jesus Christ brings mutual enrichment. The elderly should not be social outcasts, but a living overpass between generations. Not a dead end, but a well-lighted avenue to lead younger people into the riches of a superlative time of life. And the final component is spiritual activity. Paul exhorts us at the beginning and at the end of his second epistle to continue to grow in grace. Spiritual growth is not optional, but essential. One of the most important aspects of life we overlook as maturing Christians is the importance of keeping the cutting edge on our spiritual life. We tend to ride rather than develop, to coast rather than to climb, to plateau rather than pursue. Spiritual maturity, comments Ben Patterson, does not come with age, but it rarely comes without it. Meditation, Thinking and rethinking about God's word is often crowded out in our younger years. It's never too late for the discipline and enrichment of scripture memory. Many saints, tempered with spirit-directed thinking, need to be heard. To gather in groups to interact with each other about the God they soon will be meeting face to face. We conclude naively that an acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior not only ensures an entrance into heaven, but automatically sets a course of wisdom, serenity, and well-being for the remainder of our human lives. Nothing is further from the truth.
A soulless life secretes boredom, Paul Tournier said. There are two Greek words for life, psyche, biological life, the life of mortal man, and zoe, translucent life, the life of God. This is the differentiation of our Lord in John 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and might have it to the full. The life of Christ makes alive, even into the latter years, many who are at the point of death are full of life. But holistic health must be linked from a Christian perspective with distinctive death. If a person does not fulfill his task in life, contentment vanishes and death supervenes. Imagine facing your maker in eternity, having failed to do what he assigned and being ignorant of his revelation. Perhaps the most important task of an elderly individual is to teach the world how a believer dies. I've watched several saints in my close circle of acquaintances lose sight, hearing, and mobility. They've been stripped of independence and of worldly status, which they formerly used as a significant witness for Christ. Yet as the walls closed in about them, no evidence of impatience or resentment against God ever showed up. God assumes responsibility for elderly people. Dare we question the length of our years? Moses, who officiated at more funerals than anyone else, since a whole generation perished on his watch, Prayed in the 90th Psalm, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The growth and development of our inner life may be the most distinctive opportunity old age brings. It's not our many birthdays that count with God, but it is the nobility, the aristocracy of being a member of God's senior saint corps that should determine our attitudes and behavior. Growing in grace demands that we reach for new dreams, a more cultured identity, not live with stale memories of what used to be. It simply means a continual intensifying of the Spirit's characteristic. Do not seek death. Death will find you. But seek the road which makes death a fulfillment. So wrote Dag Hammarskjöld. The Christian concept of death is not darkness, but dawn, the beginning of life in the presence of light. Celebration is appropriate to all of life, including death for the believer. In the catacombs of Rome, where first century believers buried their dead, many of the tombs are not inscribed with the birth dates, only death dates. The practice reflects the early Christian belief that death days are more important than birthdays. The major difference? 
When we die, we enter a far better life than the life which we began in human birth. Far more to be desired than the world we leave, a triumphant climax to mortal life. Make no mistake, aging is a do-it-yourself assignment, but it does not arrive suddenly at age 65 or any other number of years. We become, and that becoming is up to each of us. We fulfill our own prophecies. We are our own fashion designers for the four overlapping areas of our life, physical, intellectual, social, and spiritual attributed to a Civil War veteran whose injuries on the battlefield left him crippling, is this enlightening poem. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I have received nothing I asked for, but all that I hope for. My prayer is answered. Will yours be? So to continue this conversation about what now, you wanted to talk with two folks on this episode, Brenda Smith and Dr. Wendell Johnson. Tell us about them real quick. Brenda Smith is the daughter of Fred Smith, who's now with the Lord. Fred had an amazing ministry, uh, almost unintended consequences. We'll let Brenda tell part of that story. But he was a businessman who was a pastor's kid. And uh, one of these, you know, today we call it viral no advertising, no marketing, no PR. People came to sit at Fred's feet even when he was uh, bedbound huh. uh, for a peer of mine that were PhDs, doctors, uh, engineers, businessmen and women. They came to sit at Fred's feet. He had a remarkable sense of humor, extraordinary set of wisdom. And uh, you're going to love hearing Brenda talk about her dad. And then uh, Dr. Wendell Johnson, who I've known for many years, but uh, really got to know him since Prof's death. And he spoke at Dr. Hendricks' graveside, which was a small, intimate gathering of family and a few friends. And Hannah, it was exquisite. And uh, we'll let uh, Wendell uh, tell that story in more detail. Well, Dr. Johnson, you've been in ministry for uh, many, many years now, and you've seen loved ones, family members, dear friends, uh, all, all kinds of people struggle with health issues, with uh, burying loved ones. Give us some overarching general principles on, on not only from uh, you know, the ministry side, but the personal side of how you approach these situations. As you know, every situation is different. Every individual is different. Uh, I do a lot of listening. I think that's the number one thing I'd say. I listen to them. To I want to know where they are at that moment. 
Uh, I want to know if they want comfort, encouragement, hope. Those are the things that are most important. And from that, then I move on to encourage them or to provide hope, to uh, pray with them, to read Scripture if I know that that's meaning to them. And I think when Scripture is read, it needs to be read slowly so they can think about it, so it can have the impact that it should have on their life. So, yes, I I would say uh, I found out that people want hope. Whatever the situation is, whether it has to do with uh, uh, health or whether it has to do with business, whether it has to do with family problems, they want hope. They want to know that there's something they can grasp onto that will encourage them and help them, even if it's a uh, incurable disease, such as my son Graham, my youngest son, had. Uh, you sense that that's something that's so needed that you want to provide hope for them. And the hope that you provide is in the scriptures because the Lord is full of that. His presence, I think helping people to understand that they are not alone. I find that to be a, a major factor in people's lives. They they feel lonely, particularly when they're facing uh, problems, trials, death, grieving. So they they want to know that someone cares, someone's there. I've had people say to me, uh, nobody cares about what's going on. And I said, why do you think I'm here? The mm. Lord has directed me here so that we can pray together, we can talk together, we can sense that the Lord does have something for you. So I would say those are things that uh, uh, come to mind readily. You know, Dr. Johnson, sometimes um, it's indelicate to talk to someone about a morbid issue or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, frankly, we don't like to talk about death in the Western mm-hmm. view of Christianity. We don't like to talk about cancer and mm-hmm. and ALS and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. dementia. It, it's almost like the third rail. Mm-hmm. Hel- right. Help us understand how to broach these subjects in a in a hopeful way. And a God is with you way without being uh, morbid or uh, overstepping. Well, I can do that, and I can do that in a very personal way because uh, on our 56th wedding anniversary, I got a phone call from my youngest son who pastors in who pastored in uh, Perth, Australia, and uh, he and his wife were on the phone together to me, and they said, "Dad." Uh, Graham has cancer, and that the doctors say there's no hope for him. There's nothing they can do for him. And so, you know, everything went blank. And then I realized we've got to to head on. We've got to talk about the reality of this cancer, which was mesothelioma, and and the reality of it. Uh, He had the best doctor in Australia, the man who knew more about this disease than anybody else. In fact, this man was a member of his accountability group. And the uh, physician just said, there's nothing you can do. Just go home and realize that. And so I sensed that he needed not only to recognize the seriousness of his uh, disease, but also to give him hope, say, look, God is still in control. God has a purpose for you, maybe even in this illness. 
and we're going to work together on this. I want them to know I'm going to be with them every day. I'm going to call them. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to pray with them. But I'm going to talk reality, but I'm also going to talk hope and say, let's try everything we can. Let's do our part because we know that God will do his part. And that went on for, he did it. He uh, he found the best help he could and went through the all the efforts that these doctors made to uh, get rid of that disease, and which it did, it ultimately, it took his life. But uh, I, I think there's a danger that sometimes we're, we're unwilling to face what reality is, but we need to back it up immediately with saying, as long as there's life, there's hope. God can do through that illness what you never did think about. He can use you in that way. And he can heal you if that's his purpose and desire. But that's uh, what we went through, and we found the grace of God for us. We saw the grace of God for him. And there it is. It's uh, right there, as dark as it may be and as sad as it may be. Yet it wasn't sad because we knew from the standpoint that God was in control. And an interesting thing is the day he died, uh, the doctor was there and said, don't you feel like you've been cheated in your life? You're, you're just 51 years old. And he said, no. He said, I feel like I've lived two lives. He said, the Lord has given me opportunities I never dreamed I could have. And he's allowed me to serve him around the world. Mm. And in Australia, the Lord has helped me to, and, and so he could. That was his testimony, mm. his last words that God's faithfulness. Mm-hmm. No matter how long it's been, it's still hard, isn't it? It is. It's hard. One of the things uh, Prof talked about in this lecture was dying earlier than our actual death. Mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, you know, in his incredible way with right. humor and wit, you know, some people are dead and don't know it. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> how do we, Wendell, entropy's tough to beat. And as, as we age, it's really hard to keep hope. It's really hard to know I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to face cancer of a child or our own. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we keep from dying before we're dead? Well, I think part of it is the fact that if if we're going to allow ourselves that frame of mind of that that there is nothing we can do, we're not being creative as God made us. Because I think every situation, there is something creative about it that God can use us. I know when I retired, people said, well, what are you going to do? Well, I found out a whole new world opened for me. And it was uh, I did things I were not able to do before because now I had time to think, I had time to read, I had time to study, and uh, so God opened that world for me. And I've seen that happen to other people. There's something you can do, and but I think part of it is that we allow ourselves to be deceived uh, that it's over. There's nothing we can do, and even people who are invalids or have to stay at home, they find things they can do now through email, through internet, 
there's, there's so much that goes on just like this podcast. There's just so much that can be done for people who are trapped in their home even. So uh, the opportunities are there. I think it's uh, that for us to help them and to encourage them and say, don't give up. I think that's the, the message I get from the scripture is that God will use us until he sees fit to take us home. When our dear prof passed away, um, you and I were privileged to have a part of the services. Mm -hmm. um, and I stood alongside with Dr. Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Seminary. And we went to the graveside with a small gathering of the Hendricks family and some close friends, very humble to be there. And Mark and I stood there watching our prof being uh, lowered into the ground. And you gave a graveside that uh, in almost 40 years, I've never, I mean, I've delivered countless messages. Mm -hmm. I've, I've attended countless funerals. Dr. Johnson, I've never heard anyone uh, share the story that you shared out of Deuteronomy chapter 34. For those who couldn't be at that gravesite, would you give us a little glimpse into that message and, uh, and your observations about it? Well, I feel like you do. I was humbled that they wanted me to take part in it, although I'd known Prof for years and we were good friends and often went out to lunch together. But I just thought, you know, there are so many people well-known that <laughs> could, take, but, could but, do what I was going to do. Believe me, I called Jean and asked her, no, please don't let me do I don't want to do this. Have somebody else do it. She said, yeah. no. <laughs> I know. I said, are, are you sure you know what you're exactly. doing? Because <laughs> I was so shocked by it. But anyway, uh, one of the things that came to my mind was the dignity of burial and what it can mean. And particularly as I thought about prof, I thought about this. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, it says that uh, Moses went up to the mount where uh, God told him to come up to the top. And he was going to show him, he was going to show Moses all the land that he was going to give to the children of Israel. He said, you're not going to enter it, but I'm going to show it to you. And they looked that day to the north and to the west and to the south, every direction, and looked at the land. And then after it was over, it says, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab. As the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Hmm. A, a friend got me onto this passage. He said, you need to look at that closely where it says the Lord had said. And I did. And in it is the Hebrew word for mouth. That's what's used here. It's by the mouth he buried him in Moab. And that word is used 425 times in the Old Testament. 140 times, it, it's literally mouth. 18 times it's translated according to the command of the Lord, or that is that the mouth is figurative here. And that's certainly a, a, a legitimate translation of what most translators use on that. Uh, but this friend of mine said, you know, I've, I've talked to some rabbis, and they pointed out to me that there were rabbis who really believed that that was literal there at that point, that... Uh, 
the Lord kissed him. The mm. Lord put his lips to him and, and buried him in Moab. And I thought, what a beautiful thought for us to know that God, who had to judge Moses, but loved him so much, and he's the only prophet I know of where it says he knew God face to face. They were very close, and I could just picture that in my mind. I could picture it with Prof standing there that the Lord would embrace him and say, I love you. But without the words, mm. it was just the, the, the touch. The, and we know that uh, that's often the way that people were honored. If you read the King James in uh, Psalm chapter 2, where it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, mm-hmm. where now the translations are honor the son. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a way to honor someone. Uh, and it was, no words were spoken. And he buried him. And uh, can you think of anything more wonderful mm. than to know that it was God who mm. buried Moses? Mm. What a lovely scene. Well, it's always I, been meaningful to me. And I love the way you uh, you expressed it uh, as well, saying that uh, Jesus came down mm. to bury his friend. Mm-hmm. And, and that dignity, because a lot of times, you know, not that it's right or wrong, but whether it's cremation sure. or donating a body to science, as people used sure. to do, um, that there was dignity in this experience that Westerners, we sanitize. You know, the body right. prepared by a mortuary. Uh, we have nothing to do with it. Maybe mm-hmm. the, the casket's closed, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. But you pointed out so eloquently, Jesus came down and buried his friend. Yeah. I, the, to me, that's that was a whole new avenue uh, and it's, it is a legitimate translation because the word is used that many times in, in, in the literal sense of mouth. But it's just the scripture is often so precise. It just says so much. It doesn't comment on it at all. It just says it. And the Lord's lips touched him mm. by the mouth. Mm. Mm. So that was my. That's why I thought of prof because he was such a precious friend we are thrilled to have brenda smith on the broadcast today thanks for being with us brenda you're welcome it's good to be here michael brenda we're talking in this series uh, we're listening to howard hendrick's messages from 1999 on the edge of eternity facing our our last few decades and one of the reasons I so appreciate talking to you is I don't think men and women in 60s, 70s, 80s have any guidance on what to do with these years. Uh, many of us are financially okay. Our health may be, you know, give or take. We visit grandchildren. We travel. What else do we do? And your father had a mission, ministry, and a joy to it, even when he was, he was very ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some insight. Help us. How do we get to some of the the places Fred was living? He understood his uniqueness, and he never gave up focusing on the maximization of that. He he used uh, the gifts that God had given him. His paraphrase of a life verse was out of Proverbs, take the gift that God has given you and use it, and you will stand before great men. Hmm. He never gave up 
using his gifts, not not to the very, very end. When he was declining, he wasn't able to travel anymore. So we created teleconferences. When he could no longer uh, use some of the, the mobility gifts, then we had bread in the bed every Saturday. We put chairs around his hospital bed in my house, and as many as 35 people would come and sit and sit all the way down the hall to listen to what he was thinking about. So he never gave up using his gifts. I think that made a real difference for him. Well, you have seen uh, a lot of our peer in 60s, 70s, 80s not not do so well. Yes. How do you encourage him, Brenda? One, I say is be grateful. I, I just turned 74, and I'm in a church where I'm relatively young because it's a retirement area. <laughs> right, That's, right. Isn't that silly? Uh, and I look around. Grumpy seniors are really unattractive. <laughs> So be grateful. Be grateful for the years and and be grateful for the experiences. Be hopeful. I don't think that there's anything that we can give more than than expressing and demonstrating the hope that we have in God through Jesus Christ. The younger ones are looking for hope, and I think that's where the connection can be. That's where the nexus occurs between our generation and those coming behind is that hope. And I I just, I believe that we need to be useful of all things. I get really, really tired of hearing uh, my peers say, I paid my dues. You know, I've done that. It's my turn to just sit. It is not your turn to sit. Your call to usefulness and spiritual gifts never expire. There's no time date stamp. We're not a carton of milk. So be useful. Use the gifts that God's given you. Well, I, I would beg to differ. I know some folks who get a little sour and they're, they're Oh yes. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I was talking to Gene Hendricks about this. I said it seems when you go to assisted living their people are bitter or sweet. There's a very yes. little gray zone. I think that's right. I, I don't know if you remember in an unnamed church in Dallas, there was a very famous Sunday school class, and its nickname was the Sit, Soak, and Sour Group. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the last was the most uh, descriptive, yes. yeah. Let's go back in decades. What mm-hmm. what do you see and what do you say to encourage our 20, 30 40-year-olds as they're, because again, my, my thesis is we're, we're sort of, you know, it's an urgency thing. We're getting married, we're raising children, we're building careers, we're having college savings plans, we're dealing with health issues, dying parents. You know, we're in this treadmill and yeah. we're not planning some of the more important things in these earlier decades. And then all of a sudden we're 60 and 70 going, what do I do yeah. now? How did I get here? How do you encourage them uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s? When I look at that, our ministry, our Breakfast with Fred Leadership Institute, we work with college students. And so we see a lot of that 20-ish group, and then we follow them into their 30s. So as, as we look at them, we encourage them, as Dad did, 
to define their uniqueness. I don't think there's anything more important than to see what their piece of God's puzzle is and and to find that fit because it gives them the freedom that they need for the rest of their lives. There are a lot of tears in in that period of time, especially that oh thirties and forties. Uh, I I tell them don't waste any of those tears. God puts those tears in a bottle and through divine alchemy, which I call it, he exchanges those tears for an anointing oil. And you will have the opportunity one day to open that bottle and take that anointing oil to aid someone else who's coming behind you who will need the words and need that anointing oil. So don't waste any bit of the the failures or the you know the potholes of life because they're going to be important someday and uh, one of the things dad always said which I totally agree now that I'm in my old age he said don't make a junkyard of your old age and I see that with some of our college students who are making terrible decisions And those decisions are really going to impact them decade after decade. And there are some junky places that didn't have to be. So, Michael, I I guess those are the sort of things. Plus, I would say there is hope. There is hope. Always, always uh, know the hope of Jesus. So let's say we agree. That I love your review. Be grateful, be hopeful, be youthful. Use the gifts God's given you that don't expire. Um, great, great reminders. But, you know, cancer, dementia, uh, losing a spouse, going through a divorce, a child that breaks your heart, a grandchild that breaks your heart, um, you know, just, just the troubles and trials of this broken world, and we're broken creatures. Brenda, how do I, how do I continue to be grateful and hopeful and youthful and Use my gifts and you know, not expire. How can you not, Michael? Is there any other way um, to manage those waters? When I was 40, uh, I didn't realize that there was a midlife crisis clause in our marriage contract, but there was. And my husband, he, he took that option and he was gone. He exercised that option. So I ended up as a single parent. Uh, I've never remarried. So I have gone through those difficulties. Right this minute, I have a grandson who is on parole and has been assigned to my house. <laughs> so I I know what it feels like to stand and shout at God saying, you better be real. <laughs> this better not just be a Sunday school <laughs> lesson. You know, so I don't want my it, life to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> exactly. So if if he's not real, if we're not grateful, if we're not hopeful, if we're not useful, I think we would just fold up our tents. Um, I I think it's in those hard times that God is so very real to us, and the older we get, the more we're going to have opportunities. To trust him. Do you think it's possible for us to grow apart from pain and difficulty? 
do you mean in spite of it or to separate ourselves from it? My, my thesis and my own experience, and I'm being probably a little too transparent here, is I don't think I grow apart from pain and oh, problems and disappointments no. and challenges. I think when, when life is going swimmingly, I often oh. use the, when Cindy and I love each other, when the bills are paid, when my kids all think I'm a great father or grandfather, you know, when life is hunky-dory, I don't need God. That's right. That, that's right. You, you do, but you just are Well, no, right, right. But I'm do. anesthetizing myself. I'm saying, hey, I'm fine. Yeah, Everything's I going know. swimmingly. Jesus is blessing me, right? I Oh, I so agree. That's why I love Peter's uh, letters, because when he says, you know, always be prepared to get an answer for the hope that is in you, we always put that in a Western context where we're told, oh, just be joyful and happy, and everybody will come up to you and say, oh, I want to believe in Jesus, too, because I want a good life. It wasn't. He was writing to people who were being persecuted. That hope was, was, hey, how can you possibly be hopeful with all this going on in your life? And I think that's what happens to us. We are to share the hope in those desperate times, those times that don't make sense to the world. And those are the times where joy looks crazy, but it's most real. When you were caring for your dad, and um, you may or may not remember, but Cindy and I came to I your home do. in Dallas. Yeah, I really do. Such a treasure of a time. Um, what was Brenda learning watching oh. her dad age? <laughs> and Cindy and I still laugh about it. Well, you and your dad had this exchange because you were wheeling him, <laughs> and he was still in a wheelchair. And he yes. he complained, but lightheartedly, about something, and you said, Dad— we may not do it the way you want it, but we get it done. And you both laughed. <laughs> and I think um, part of the answer to that is that we did laugh. There were very hard times. Um, it was the old Charles Dickens, the best of times and the worst of times. Mm. Because I had mom and dad both. And mom was there for four years. And then after she died, I had dad three more years. And Are you the oldest, Brenda? Oh, of course, Michael. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, it, I'm it, just, it falls to the oldest too often, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's funny when you ask that because during that time, I would get them in bed, and then I would go into my office, and I would, I would just type away. I would just write. And so I ended up writing a little book called Divine Confinement because I was confined, <laughs> but it was by the hand of God. So it was divine confinement. I love it. I hadn't looked at the book in a long time. And I pulled it out at the very end of the book. I said, I have learned to depend on God because there really is no better choice mm. to acknowledge the reality where I am because nothing happens until I get honest to embrace God's grace and deny perfectionism, no matter how good it looks, to ask for help from those who are truly helpful. It's God's strength to comfort others in their own confinements. And all these years later, I think that's what I would still say, Michael. A number of times in Scripture, we read of how a person died. One of the first records that captures my attention 
is in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Interesting epitaph, breathe your last, died, ripe old age, old man, satisfied with life. Yet, isn't that what we all want? I mean, granted, none of us is running to the grave. We're not excited or eager to die. At least I hope we're not. But as time ticks on, as days turn into weeks, months, and years, before we know it, if it's not our own death, of course, we see other people die. We see people die young. We uh, bury spouses. We bury friends. We bury parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, close ones. Um, as hard as it may be to think through, it is our lot. Scripture begins with the warning that once man sinned, that dying he would die. My question for you and for me is, will we have lived a ripe old age? Will we die full and satisfied with life? Or will we become bitter? I don't know the time or the place or how I will die. But one of my dear mentors now with the Lord was Floyd Sharp. When he was dying, he was hospitalized with bone cancer that was ravaging his body. He'd been under numerous treatments and radiation therapy, but his heart was failing. They needed to do a surgical procedure to try and place a stent, uh, but it was very risky because of his compromised health. They knew the risks. They explained it to him. It was a choice he had to make. As sick as he was, the option was not very good, uh, but through prayer and discussions with the doctors, he decided to go ahead and have the procedure. Right before the procedure, the doctor came in and explained to him once again the risks involved. And Floyd grabbed his arm and called him by his name. And he said, I know you're going to do your best. And no matter what happens, Floyd said, I want you to make me a promise that you'll use your great intellect to investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. That was literally Floyd Sharp last act on the planet. He died in the procedure. As part of his funeral service, that doctor from that hospital traveled some 45 minutes to attend a patient's funeral service. I don't know what God did in that physician's life, but I sure know what Floyd did in his last breath. He shared the hope that he had in Christ, as he did with everyone he ran into. Whether you and I live to be 70, 80, 90, 30, a hundred, I don't know. But I wonder what our last act will be. We're living a life for God and for others, not merely for ourselves. That's life in context. This is Michael Easley. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.